From the PA Foundation, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. As PAs, we have a tremendous responsibility to provide the best possible care to our patients. As frontline clinicians, we see patients during all stages of their journey through health. And through our experience interacting with patients, we understand that the term whole person care isn't just a buzz phrase. It's a critical lens through which we approach patient treatment and care to ensure we consider all the distinct factors that impact people's health. Currently, there is no single standard definition for whole person care. In fact, an article published in the National Institute of Health's National Library of Medicine tells us that while the importance of whole person or holistic care is widely recognized, its precise meaning remains somewhat ambiguous, and it may not mean the same thing to all providers. Here to help us explore the significance and nuances of whole person care is Amber Danielecki-Buzzy, PAC, a PA practicing internal medicine in Tampa, Florida. She's also a mental health first aid instructor and co-owner of Get Up and Go Kayaking. Joining Amber, we have Phyllis Peterson, PAC, a longtime leader of the Association of PAs in Psychiatry. Amber, Phyllis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Now let's talk about the concept of whole person care. What does that phrase mean to you? It's interesting. You know, we are trained to evaluate and treat an illness with tangible things such as medicine, nutrition, or exercise. But it really goes beyond that. We have to ask ourselves what factors are preventing our patients from eating well or exercising in the first place. What are the psychosocial factors at play here? Are there financial barriers preventing them from purchasing healthy foods or their medication? Do they work three jobs and they struggle to find the time to exercise? Are they suffering from depression or an anxiety disorder that prevents them from attaining their goals? There are just so many more pieces to solving the puzzle on how to improve health for our patients outside of simple lifestyle modifications and medication management. So to answer your question, whole person care means for me looking beyond the question of what intervention will improve a patient's health and asking how we make these interventions and health goals attainable for our patients. I think the other thing that's brought us to the understanding and more propensity toward trying to get whole person care is that the demographics of our patients have changed. There's more multi-comorbidities and that people need care from various places. I, I think one of the problems in that is our system of siloed care doesn't allow us to easily speak to other entities. And that's one of the major challenges that systems that integrate or try to use whole person care has. Um, Also, patients have internet access and there's more technology, which leads to more consumer demand. And I think that the leadership in medicine has even contributed to wanting to use in more whole person care. And even burnout has, you know, people are reexamining what they find fulfilling and what they want to do in terms of their work and in balancing work-life efforts. 
I think the uh, interdisciplinary aspect that you mentioned is so important when we consider whole person care. I see that in my specialty in cardiac surgery, where I have one aspect of their health that I'm very focused on, but to not consider um, all of their other comorbidities it is a detriment to the patient. And it sounds like from both your perspective that whole person care is clearly closely tied to the social determinants of health, which were previously mentioned, looking at the external conditions and circumstances in a person's life that impact how they live, their health risks and outcomes, things as simple as being able to afford the medications that we prescribe. Absolutely, James. You know, there has been a lot of discussion around considerations of socioeconomic factors, geographical locations, and cultural differences that affect health, well-being, and access to resources. So, for example, a patient living in a food desert, such as, you know, urban or rural, where their access to fresh produce and foods is limited, it's going to be difficult for these patients living in an area to actively choose foods that help improve their health conditions like diabetes or hypertension or prevent them from happening in the first place without us helping them figure out access or resources with them. Another consideration is thinking about where they live. I speak to patients about exercising outside or going for a walk, but there are factors such as safety of their neighborhoods that may prevent them from having this ability to go outdoors and exercise. So even attempting to overcome these obstacles creatively, the situation is going to be different for every patient. So which is why brainstorming about how they can accomplish their healthy habits and goals together really goes a long way in actually achieving these health outcomes. I agree. I think you always need to have some sort of actionable plan for your patients when it comes to their health. That is more than just take this medication. Now, why is whole person care such an important aspect of primary care? And to take that one step further, how can PAs that are in other specialties incorporate this concept into the care that they provide? In primary care, we're often the frontline medical care professionals for all of our patients. You know, we see a plethora of complaints and we're also charged with preventative health maintenance. Um, therefore, we have to take every opportunity to figure out what's fully going on in our patients' lives to ensure that we prevent major health incidents or chronic disease states. We do that by caring for every aspect of the patient, whether it's physical, mental, or even their emotional well-being. I think we as PAs across all specialties can better address whole person care by asking ourselves again, you know, how we can ensure medication implants, lifestyle modifications, or even therapeutic interventions are done. You know, we can simply start by asking our patients, do they foresee any barriers or obstacles in doing X, Y, and Z of your treatment plan? And from there, we can start a dialogue that addresses so much more than disease. You know, is a patient anxious about going to physical therapy? Do they not have the financial resources to pick up their medications? Um, you know, is their motivation low? Are they having depressive symptoms that may prevent them from exercising? These are all topics we have to bring up with our patients to make sure that we can actually get them on to our treatment plan and adhere to it. Well, I think that in psychiatry, one of the first things you learn and one of the first things I teach is how to do a complete evaluation, which means that you are incorporating information about social determinants of health for the patient, uh, 
and their current situation, as well as their abilities to understand and mitigate the circumstances that they're in at the current time. So I think that PAs in primary care need to move toward that. And I think there is movement in that direction. It's a matter of the way that we practice medicine is that we sometimes will, uh, and many patients that need whole person care the most because they have the least resources are the ones who go to urgent care and emergency departments for most of their care. So there's no continuity of who they see, and that affects the relationship of the provider and the patient. I think that PAs in primary care already do some of this because there's special programs and protocols, shall we say, for people that have cardiac disease or diabetes. And I think that in terms of psychiatry, we know that PAs in all settings already do a, a lot of or see a lot of psychiatric patients and, and interact with them on that level. I think that there just needs to be more integration and more in, uh, measurement-based care in primary care. And the main thing that I hear about when I talk to PAs about that is that there's not time for that. And so I think the system as a whole needs to make time for that. Um, there was a recent article in the AAPA journal indicating that 62% of PAs who are in primary care and internal medicine uh, and general medicine uh, see at least a psychiatric diagnosis every week. So they need they're doing a lot of psychiatric care already. I think that we need to make efforts to make it uh, easier for them. And I think there are some ways that you can do that by pulling in maybe another profession into the practice. But also, you can train somebody who's excited about mental health in your practice to help you with getting history and doing scales and measuring care so that you can make decisions on it. I like that thought of, you know, using our providers' inherent uh, motives and their passions to really address these things. If you have a, a PA who does care about these things, to train that PA, have them assess these patients um, from a yeah. mental health or from a whole person you know, perspective. Now, do you both feel like whole person care is becoming more of a focus for PAs and other healthcare providers? And what could be contributing to this? Well, I think it's a variety of things. I think I've mentioned before the change in demographics and consumer demand. Um, I think that even with COVID, um, you're seeing that there's no way that you can't mention emotions if you're seeing somebody for, you know, upset stomach or whatever, or their routine visit for hypertension. You, you have to know how they're doing with the COVID restrictions and are they keeping safe and that kind of thing? And I think in some ways 
TAs have always been better about that. I mean, we learned that assessment of risk and safety is really important in all that you do. I think um, what we learn sometimes isn't as easily put into practice because of the systems that we work in. So the fact that many systems are going to be implementing more of these whole person integrated interdisciplinary measures um, can be really helpful. I think the fact that CMS and other payers are trying to get people to do this kind of care that, <clears throat> for instance, in psychiatry, if a psychiatrist consults to a primary care uh, practice and helps them manage their patients from a distance, uh, they're just looking at the data and talking with the case manager or the, the, the provider, they can make a difference in how closer, how much closer people get to wellness, like remission of their depression, for instance, versus just getting better because you gave them an antidepressant. What are the things that might be added to that? And how might you adjust that medication to move from improve to remission? So I do feel that whole person care is becoming more of a focus for all healthcare providers as we begin to become more aware and discuss the social determinants of health or the psychosocial factors and even mental health as true factors in attaining well-being. There are many things that are propelling whole person care forward, you know, from COVID to an increased awareness and advocacy for mental health. This year in particular, things have changed so drastically for everyone that we've started to realize that there's just so much more to consider when we're talking about health. We're seeing all the problems that existed in our communities before the pandemic become exacerbated, like food and housing security, unemployment, and even an overwhelmed healthcare system for both physical and mental health concerns. As we're becoming more aware that these problems exist, we're addressing them more robustly than ever before. I agree. I see that in my practice. I think there's much more attention being paid to the social determinants with our patients to ensure that not only will they be able to get through what we want them to do, but will they be able to continue that at home and recover well and maintain health. Now, Amber, I want to dig a little deeper into the mental health aspect of this. You are a certified mental health first aid instructor, and I want to applaud you first for getting this certification. Mental Health First Aid is a terrific program that helps community members understand more about mental health and substance use disorders and learn how they can help someone in a crisis with an emphasis on guiding them to seek help from healthcare providers. Clearly, you are passionate about mental health. Now, tell us from your experience, how does mental health come into play in whole person care? Thanks so much, James. Mental health plays a huge role in whole person care. Just like with physical health and well-being, everyone also has mental health and well-being, which requires maintenance and care throughout their lifetime. Um, healthy habits, such as getting regular sleep, eating nutritious meals, and exercising, help maintain both our physical and mental well-being. But, you know, it's, it's difficult to have one when you don't have the other. 
it can be really difficult for a patient who is depressed or anxious to eat well, to sleep adequately, or even find the motivation to exercise, which can result in their physical health being affected as well. Uh, the same thing could be say, said about a person struggling with a physical health condition. You know, rates of depression are twice as high in individuals with diabetes, and obesity is associated with 25% increased odds of mood and anxiety disorders. You know, being more aware that mental health plays such a huge role in someone's life and their behavior has led me to ask more direct questions in my practice and allows me to help break down barriers that they perceive or that they have to achieving their health goals. I've also noticed that by directly acknowledging mental health as a component of my treatment plan during visits has drastically aided in creating a more honest environment with my patients and has created more well-rounded conversations with better outcomes long-term and short-term. I agree with that thought that addressing these things when you're not specifically having a visit for you know, depression or anxiety is so important to our patients. I see that in the post-operative setting where post-operative depression rates are elevated, especially in our older men. And having that conversation with them of, you know, how are you feeling emotionally? What are you going through right now? Talk to me about that. It allows the, the patients to open up and to seek advice, seek treatment, seek help where they may not have felt like this was the right environment or I wasn't the right person until we brought up the question and asked. Absolutely. You know, asking these types of questions, it almost gives the patient permission to openly talk about what they're feeling. Um, it's interesting, you know, there's this idea with medicine that we, we give a prescription and this is what you do and we give that to our patient. Um, so it's almost like people don't feel like they can be honest about how they feel emotionally or mentally until we give them permission to do it. So by asking that question, it's really opening a lot of doors for patients. Now, Phyllis, you are a veteran PA. You have spent many years as a specialist in psychiatry. Now, in your words, how does mental health correlate with whole person care? And what tips can you share with PAs when thinking about whole person care? In terms of whole person care, of course, we understand in recent times that mental health care is a lot of, of how people get better and stay well. It's not just being without disease. It means that you're functioning well and being whole. And um, in terms of psychiatry, I think that we need to become more accustomed to asking questions that seem hard to uh, many PAs that um, just even when I've had for students, um, they find it hard to ask about a person's sexual history or their trauma history and, and especially about racial trauma. And I've always said that it's just like suicide. A person wants to be asked if they have suicidal thoughts. And you have to think of all of that together, that they're not going to be put off because you asked about those things that are affecting them. They're going to want to tell you about them most of the time, and they're going to feel relieved that somebody cares about them. So I tell people to really start generally 
um, like we do now? How are you feeling emotionally? What emotions do you have that you feel like are things you shouldn't share with people right now? Many people going through the pandemic have felt that they shouldn't tell people that they're hopeless. I think Michelle Obama helped with that in her talk about that she has periods where she feels down. I think that most people do. Most of us wake up some days and think, I don't know if I can do this again today, you know, and or, you know, do I really have to put that smile on and tell somebody I'm fine when I'm not? Well, no, you don't. You can say, well, I'm struggling today. And but if you don't ask people these questions and ask specifically about their circumstances, um, like you said, if you prescribe a medication to somebody for their cardiac illness and they can't afford it, what happens? You know, you have to pay attention to that in order to get them well because of their cardiac condition. So social things and emotional things come into play all the time. I think there are a lot of resources that patients can access, and I tend to give patients direct kind of assignments about exercise and mindfulness and meditation and choose some things that they can do that they feel they can accomplish. And sometimes, you know, with a very depressed patient that you're seeing for the first or second time, it's just get out of bed and take off your pajamas and put on some clothes. You know, not every day maybe, but at least two days this week. And then next week we'll do a little more. So you have to really see where they are and how you can get them to the next step. I think that speaks to the concept, um, especially of, of meeting patients where they're at and helping them from there. Um, and the point you made about asking the tough questions is so important. As providers, that's, that's something we've signed up for. And the more we do it, the easier that becomes. Now, we can't talk about mental health, of course, without addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, as we've touched on. Um, as we are recording this, we are in the nine month of the pandemic. And I recently saw we have over 335,000 deaths in America alone. <laughs> Looking ahead to the new year, which can be overwhelming for individuals um, who are feeling isolated, grieving the loss of loved ones, detached from their families, suffering economically as a result of the pandemic, this is going to be ever-present in our patients' lives. Now, do, you, do, do both of you feel like COVID-19 has changed or should change how we think about whole-person care? COVID-19 has probably pushed us to adapt to more whole-person care, to more caring about people's emotions and taking that into consideration in our care and our treatment planning. Also, more use of technology, um, and it's, you know, sometimes people really like telehealth, but it can be a little 
difficult to get that same kind of rapport. You don't get to touch the patient and you don't get to uh, make the same kind of eye contact. It can be more difficult, but it also makes us be able to use some other techniques that can help us. If we think that there is hope now because of the vaccinations, but those won't get to, you know, my 29-year-old healthy son for another eight or nine months, probably. But we can continue to encourage that hopefulness. And I think that um, we will continue to use telemedicine. Uh, there was a study recently that said 35% of healthcare after the pandemic will still be using telemedicine. And so we have to find ways to improve the experience for the patient um, and how hospitals have been being used are different now too. More things are day surgery only. So we might need more aftercare away from the hospital, either in clinics or at the patient's home or, you know, hopefully through telemedicine. Um, I've used that this year myself quite a bit for my own care and uh, for the care of others. And I've always liked telemedicine, and I think that it can really help, but it does present some challenges. And I think that we'll have to grow some resources and change how we use resources to uh, overcome those challenges. And the pandemic has also brought into focus more the social, racial, economic disparity that is seen rampantly in mental health and in regular health care and behooves us to notice those things and try to improve the way that we address them. So since the start of the pandemic, my office visits have actually changed drastically. Um, I've seen a lot more honesty from my patients about their mental health. Um, as a result, I've noticed that more are reaching out for help than ever before. And they're also researching more um, about figuring out what they need to do for self-care or to maintain their mental health or what it should be and trying to modify their lives to survive in this world that's been turned upside down. You know, while everyone's trying to find some resemblance of normalcy by maintaining exercise routines or adjusting to working in a household filled with their family members, they're struggling mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, the list goes on, and we know that the struggle is real, and we all know it, which is why I think embracing the idea of whole person care moving forward is so important, you know, to find ways to improve health by looking at the whole picture and actively taking these factors into account, the emotional, the physical, the financial, the access um, to care during our visits. That way we can actually start making a difference in how our treatment plans come into focus and how patients' lives really improve um, throughout their visits with us. So it sounds like both of you kind of agree that the, these changes we've seen under um, kind of the premise of COVID 
may be long-lasting and actually beneficial to the healthcare system and to our patients as a whole. I just want to say, I think, you know, because we're talking about all of these problems, you know, online in the news with each other, uh, patients are going to continue to seek care that looks at the entirety of their lives and not just, you know, one medication, not just one thing. You know, we as a society, we're talking more about self-care, mental health, social issues with more frequency in general. So we have more awareness, I think, than ever before. So now we're going to start seeing a lasting change of starting to include that entire picture in our visits. And I think it will be good long term. Now, as PAs, we've mentioned, you know, the system is changing, increased in telemedicine and you know, phone visits, some of these things that we were not routinely doing. Um, that we've had to adapt under current circumstances. Now, recognizing there may be long, long-term effects on our patients, um, the COVID long haulers, if you will, even, that, that have long-term physical um, symptoms from their COVID experiences, what measures do you feel like we should be putting in place so we can appropriately support our patients in the future? So since the start of the pandemic, I've actually started incorporating new questions into my visits, um, one of which being, how is your mental health, whether it's just in the context of their visit or just checking in, and also, how are things at home, to allow me to gather a picture of what's going on in a person's life beyond just what they're asking you, you know, how they're doing, since our reflex to that question is always, oh, I'm good. You know, one thing that's going to be vital moving forward is that we ensure we properly screen our patients for mental health conditions, and we have to ask the hard questions, um, like Phyllis said earlier. And I mean the really hard questions, like, are you having thoughts of suicide? Um, you know, skimming, not skimming through them during triage or our routine PHQ-9s is going to be super important. And it's important right now, even on telemed, if we're asking these tough questions, Someone that's having thoughts of suicide, are they're going to be a little bit more honest about it if we directly ask them. Um, so it's important even when we're just doing our screening tests to make sure that we don't skim over them. We go ahead and ask the right questions. Um, and we just start incorporating mental health and, you know, some of these other questions like how are things are at home um, to make sure that we're, we are hitting on the whole picture and we invite patients to tell us what's actually going on in their lives. I think Amber's absolutely right. I think that more places, more of where people get visits and the telepsych visits, prior to the visit, it takes no time for the patient to fill out some things. And when you ask the hard questions, like how are things at home, if you don't get much detail, ask a different way. You know, I, I go with, in my visits, I always am asked, do you feel safe at home? Well, you know, to me, that's too general of a question. And I, I know what they mean. They mean, are you being abused at home by anyone? And to me, I just wonder, why don't you ask that? Because, <laughs> because to a lot of people, that means, you know, do you have locks on your doors? Do you have a place that's safe from intruders or whatever, that may not mean that are you being abused. And so I think we need to learn to be more direct, but I think um, we have to continue to ask those questions because a lot of people have emotional issues with the pandemic things now, but 
they're going to continue to have them. For some people, it'll be delayed by a couple of years, and then something will happen that makes them kind of go into a spin down, and all the stuff that happened to them during the pandemic will come up. And for many people, it's going to continue to be a struggle to move forward because when you've lost your job and you've nearly lost your home and you've, you know, lost contact in many ways, it takes a long time to build that up again. And I think we really need to be vigilant about how people are progressing in that over the next few years. I agree that ask and re-ask when you see the patient again um, becomes so important. And even in small ways, you know, one week, your patient may not have been exposed to COVID. The next week, they may be positive. So seeing that, um, that flux of how people deal with an ever-present pandemic and the way it will affect them, their family, their living situation is so important to follow up on as we continue to see these patients. Now, Phyllis, before we close, I want to ask a little bit more about serious mental illness. Now, this is an area in which many PAs have knowledge, we have education, but perhaps not as much hands-on experience. What advice or resources do you have for PAs who, when evaluating their patients, get that sense that mental health is really interfering with their ability to function from day to day? Well, that happens all the time. And traditionally, I think that many PAs would refer those patients to someplace psychiatrically, and they should do that. The problem is that for the last at least 15 years, that's been very difficult to do. Now, I think that there are a lot of resources for PAs. I think learning to explore the patient in terms of their emotions, their motivations, and their moral decision-making abilities can help PAs to figure out how this particular person is going to cope. Because you can have a patient who's suicidal and depressed who has good resilience and good moral decision-making that will keep them from acting on that, where you have a patient who has few resources, no support, and doesn't have the ability to manage their decisions, and they might be a person who does act on those impulses. So patients really need a lot of outside support many times, and I think that um, learning more about those can help. There are resources such as the, a really important one is Serious Mental Illness, which is an app and a website. You can put the app on your phone, and patients can put it on their phone also. Um, it gives you guidelines. It gives you continuing medical education that's all free, uh, handouts for patients and families. They even have scales on there. And I tell a patient to get this app and fill out those scales so that I can see them when they come in or we can fill it out during the interview and they can tell me 
about what their score is. They can say why they're high on this or low on this. Um, and I think there's a lot of depression-related mobile apps for self-management. There are many things that people can use. I think there's tons of resources out there, and just find some that you like, print them out, and give them to every patient. And it is great to know there are so many resources available to providers, and we will be sure to include many of these in the resources section of this podcast. Amber and Phyllis, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. It's really been fun. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And to our audience, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Vital Minds. This episode of Vital Minds is a collaborative effort between the NCCPA Health Foundation and the PA Foundation, and is part of the Partners in Mental Health Initiative. This initiative leverages a collective impact change strategy to improve the nation's health by advancing the roles of PAs and strengthening partnerships to address issues impacting mental health and substance use disorders. Achieving these goals means encouraging all PAs, regardless of discipline or practice setting, to be champions of mental health care and to reduce the stigmas associated with mental illness. We invite you to join this movement today. To listen to other episodes of Vital Minds and to view all the related resources, visit pa-foundation.org.